It's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. You know, I'm amped up to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Lynn Heidi. Lynn Heidi is founder of UpYourTelesales.com and the expert at creating profitable telesales salespeople and organizations. So it's not easy work to grow your sales, and yet many CEOs, sales leaders, and sales reps are their own worst enemies when it comes to accomplishing this task. They create wrong roadblocks, both real and imagined, that prevent them from doing what it takes to develop new prospects and close new orders. My guest today, Lynn Heidi, has worked extensively with teams and understands what it takes to grow your sales, and she's going to help us understand what it takes to be competitive and to increase our revenues in this competitive business world. So, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be here. So, take a minute, introduce yourself. So I have been in inside sales exclusively for the last 20 years and really work with salespeople and sales leaders to catapult themselves from where they are today to where they want to be. And I actually love the bell curve, the people that are inside the bell curve. And if we look at growing revenue, not to make them all rock stars, because it's I kind of believe that that's not possible to, for everyone to be a rock star, but if everybody in your organization increased their revenue by 10%, what a change that would make for all of us. So I like to focus on those mid-tier people. Well, I think it's a great strategy. I've written written about that actually in, in my first book specifically. I said, yeah, your return on investment from investing resources and improving the performance of the middle if done well, is much higher ROI than trying to improve the people at the top 10% because you have to imagine they, they pretty much, they're closer to their top, top potential. That's yep. why they're at the top. So, yep. you know, getting marginal improvement from the top people is not nearly as powerful as getting, as you said, 5 10% from the people in the middle. Even if it doesn't make them rock stars, it's still the additive value to the company. It's huge. And I think a lot of times those are the people who are, if I might say less of a PIA or pain in the you know what, <laughs> less, uh, yeah, I mean less of a diva, I guess you'd say. Yep. But uh, yeah, I mean not all top performers obviously are divas, but yeah, some some can be. They're convinced that theirs is the only way to do it, and they sometimes are harder to harder to change. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah. It's, it, I think that's it's about because they are the rock stars. Why would I change what I'm doing if I'm already successful? I guess that would be a better way to say it. Yeah, and those are, and that's interesting. That this could be a whole separate episode we do just on this. Is that <laughs> is that? Yeah, I mean, the people who are really successful who are open to change are going to be even more successful in ways that they they never imagined. And those who think that they figured it out, yeah, they may be good now, but they're hitting. Yeah, they're going to be static and give them two, three, four years. And I've seen this happen and play out time and time again. There is no such thing as standing still, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, love the quote, I love the quote that if, you know, if we want things to stay the way they are, we're really going to have to change. <laughs> I have to remember that. Yeah, it was, it was from an Italian author, uh, a guy named Lampedusa. I'm not sure that's not the correct pronunciation, but, uh, but yeah, that was, you know, it's a great saying. You know, if we want things to stay the way they are, they're really going to have to change. And that's... You know, a lot of times top performers don't understand that. Yep. All right. So what was the impetus to start your own company? Well, 
truly that I was in corporate America mm -hmm. and did all of the right things and climbed up the corporate food chain and hated it. So got to the point where I was doing a job that I was supposed to want and couldn't stand it. So really realized that I didn't ever want to be a sales manager again after, <laughs> after the second time I was a sales right. manager. I was a, at a regional sales director and went, ooh, I really don't like this. <laughs> I really don't. The second time around didn't make it any better. So what part of it didn't you like? I believe that you can be responsible to people and not for them. And most sales management positions are not designed that way. At least in my experience, they're responsible for you to be, you are responsible for your people's performance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I intrinsically, although successful at it, did not like it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you like to be responsible to yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's a it's an interesting career lesson for people because I know uh, more than a few people that have made similar choices that that came into management and rose up the ranks and just decided, you know, I was much happier when I was just out selling. And I loved the coaching and training part. So right, so helping people get better at what they did was the energizing piece of being a manager for me. Right, and that's what I get to do now. Yeah, full time. Excellent, excellent. So I want to talk about today about um, sort of the six-part series you wrote about increasing revenues using an acronym of the word effort, E-F-F-O-R-T. And because I thought it was a really interesting piece because it does highlight some really critical elements of what you need to do to be able to grow your company, increase your sales. So I thought we'd go through that and, and let the audience hear what you had put together. So uh, if we start with the E in effort is, I think, a great place to start. You talk about enthusiasm. If you want to increase your sales, you need to have enthusiasm. So what, what did you mean? Why was that so important? I think that we have to be enthusiastic about sales as a profession to increase our revenue. So there's the passion that we have for what we do, right? What we're selling and how it helps people. And I think of enthusiasm as really differently, I think, than that cheerleader kind of feel that sometimes we get in sales. And I think what we need to do is really think about who we are as people and, and what enthusiasm looks like for us in particular so that we know that we are drawing people in, right? So our conversation here is no different to me than a sales conversation. I need to find out a little bit about you. You found out a little bit about me. We talked for a little bit, and now we're really getting in the conversation. But if I wasn't enthusiastic, I couldn't draw you towards me by really engaging you. And that's how I think of enthusiasm. You know, it's not that cheerleader thing. It's the fact that you want to be where you are right now, having the conversation you're having, and then you're enjoying it. And so are they. So it's, it's really, so it's really a, a two-pronged enthusiasm. I mean, one is enthusiasm for what you're doing, which is the act of selling, and enthusiasm for 
what you're selling, which is the product or service that you can use to help the customer or bring value to the customer. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to have both to be successful. And the impact on the prospect is that there's, if you are enthusiastic, is one is, is you inspire confidence. You know, that's one of those first impressions is confidence. The prospect mm-hmm. immediately gravitates to somebody that's really, and again, as you said, not falsely confident in the cheerleader sense, but confident and this enthusiasm coming through is, yeah, I really enjoy this. And I really, this is, this is my passion. I, I know I can truly help you. And I'm, that's why I'm so enthusiastic to be here. It's funny because I was doing a presentation and on the spot, I came up with what I call the Winnie the Pooh continuum, right? So, we, say that we can't be Eeyore, the Winnie the Pooh continuum. <laughs> the we Winnie can't the Pooh continuum. Okay. either end, right? So we can't be Eeyore because nobody wants to talk to, oh, I don't know. I don't really know what I'm calling about or why you should talk to me. But we also don't want to be ticker and bouncy and really, really fast because they can't pay attention to that either. So there's somewhere in the middle. You got to figure out where you fit into that Winnie the Pooh continuum. Well, so here's the first. The first is the first Winnie the Pooh reference on the show, which I love. That's great. Um, <laughs> and, and, but second, I, you're right. I mean, when we talk about enthusiasm or personal, let's say personal presentation, yeah, there is the mm-hmm. spectrum that you talk about, and being on either end is not good. And because they both come across as inauthentic in some regards, right? So, and, and even even if it's authentically you, I don't know that people can listen and pay attention and be engaged with you at either end. Yeah, if it's too much work on the the hyper end, or it's just too painful on the on the ER end. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I think those the ERN people tend to sort of self-select out of <laughs> out of sales in that regard. But um, but I still think that yeah, I, one of the real keys to this, and I the notes that I wrote as I was reading through your articles was that I'm a huge believer in the power of the first impression. All right, I, I call it sometimes the first perception the customer has of you, and this enthusiasm, this light in your eyes that you're really passionate about what it is that you're doing, as I said, is a trust-building step. It's a way to quickly build rapport with the customer to start the trust-building process that is invaluable. Yeah. And I will say that in a conversation with Dan Waldschmidt, who we both know, um, a little over a year ago now, I think, He talked about what if you went into every conversation wanting the other person to be delighted? And I've actually, that's my intention. When I'm making a sales call myself, it is my intention for the other person to be delighted. And I think that's that first perception thing. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think it helps to have an intention of your own so that they get the first perception that, that you want them to have. No, oh, I think that's absolutely true. And the, and the power of first impressions and first perceptions are that they're really sticky. You know, there's mm-hmm. a, yeah, I talk about my most recent book, Amp Up Your Sales, there's research that was done by actually a academic, uh, a group of people, one of them was from Syracuse, uh, not too far from where you are. And uh, what they found is that when people form these first impressions, these perceptions of other people, is that they're very sticky and very hard to change. 
So when you think about this, yeah, that's that's a problem. If you don't, you know, if you're not coming in and creating a, a positive first impression, you already have a disadvantage in the sales process compared to somebody who comes in and creates a positive first impression. And so this enthusiasm is really a key. And you think about it, I mean, in your business, you know, you're selling yourself. So you would think you're pretty enthusiastic about that, right? Well, and I, I, I will share that I think that's the first thing everyone sells. I don't care what right. product or service you're selling, right? I think they have to buy into the idea of you, buy into the idea of the company that you work for, and then they buy stuff. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah, the company is second order. You are, you are the first order. Absolutely. Yep. And this enthusiasm, a little more complicated these days because it's not just you talking to someone, whether in person or on the phone, but it really sort of starts with your social profile. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, the enthusiasm, this isn't just your personal mannerism when you're interacting with someone face-to-face or over the phone or video or whatever. It starts with... Because what they're going to do is they're going to look at you on LinkedIn. They're going to look at you on Facebook. They're going to look at you on, on Twitter. That enthusiasm has to come through there as well. And I think back to your idea of authenticity, the other piece of that puzzle is there needs to be continuity as well. You know, if someone goes to your profiles, wherever they are, whether it's a website or a LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever you are on social media, if that's not how you show up when they actually do talk to you, I think there's a huge disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. People have a hard time as I thought, sort of squaring the circle at that point, right? Yep. Yeah, and it's yeah. hard to reconcile these two different personalities. And so suddenly the, the barriers go up. So if, oh, you, yeah. if you come across as something that's you know, very enthusiastic, customer service oriented, customer oriented in your public social profiles, and then you show up and you just start talking about you and the company and so on. Yeah, that, they're not, people have a hard time reconciling that. And so what happens is they pull back because they're not sure which is the right person, who's the real one. And that's, yep. that's going to be a problem for you. So second one is focus. <laughs> so yep. you really talk about focus in two ways. One is prioritization. The other one is being present. So let's talk about prioritization. Hmm. Okay. So when we think of prioritization or when I think of prioritization, one of the things that I think happens in our world of multitasking. And if you haven't read David Crenshaw's book, The Myth of Multitasking, that came out way back in 2008, I believe, um, pick it up, um, is that we need to make sure that we're looking at what are the activities that are going to move us forward in the sales process. And I actually would prefer to use the word buyer's process because mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we get stuck as salespeople in that idea that I'm going to move them through my process when in fact we need to insinuate ourselves into how they buy instead, um, which could be a whole nother conversation as well. But really knowing what's not relevant and making sure that we are doing all of the right actions so that we are going through that process with them at where they are at the moment. Yeah. So absolutely. I agree. So one of the, 
the aspects I like you wrote about in the article is that sort of talking about, you know, multitasking doesn't really work is that you need to block out time on your calendar to sell. Mm-hmm. I mean, if it doesn't sound on your calendar, it doesn't get done. Yeah. And I, I find for myself personally, right. So I'm an, an, a Microsoft outlook user, right. With my calendar and I am much more likely to move an appointment than I am to just dismiss it or delete it. Right, it's already on there, just shift it. So I find for myself, the big bonus that I get is number one, when someone asks me to do something, if I have selling time on my calendar, I am more likely to ask them if we can meet at another time. So even though it's only quote unquote, or just an appointment with myself, it's sales time. So for instance, scheduling a conversation with you, I can pick a time that's not a sales focused time and make sure that I keep that commitment to myself for revenue generating activity. And I don't know, I've only ever had one person say, no, that's the only time I can talk to you, I think. And they're, you know, right. you know most of our prospects and customers are merely picking a time that's open on their calendar and are completely open to rescheduling. So, yeah. Well, I think that, you know, a tool or one idea for people that, that they could consider doing is that, yeah, you've got time blocked out in your calendar that is your selling and it's your setting appointments and so on is, is use a scheduling program like time trade or schedule once or something like that, that you send the customer a link to schedule and you've got your availability blocked out on this calendar yeah, customers are, as you said, are more flexible than you think and willing to work within the timeframes that you have. And it fits within your set calendarized selling time, which I think is really important. The other thing I liked about your focus you talked about is really a focus on the customer while you're there. You know, you really have to make a, an effort to be present. And sort of a little bit with regard to the multitasking is, is that, you know, when you're in front of a customer, you can't be looking at your phone. You can't, you really have to be if you really want to be there for them and understand their problems and ask the right questions and hear their answers, you have to be completely focused. And I will share with you, because I work with inside salespeople, it's even easier to allow yourself to be distracted because you're not physically in front of them. And, you know, it's very easy to let that instant message distract you from listening or, you know, looking something up while you're talking to somebody because you're thinking about the next thing you want to talk with them about instead right. of what they're saying right now is a very significant problem. Well, I mean, and, well, yeah, and know, I think the, a point you bring up, which was really good, which was that is by focusing on the customer, you serve, you filter out the self doubt and the self talk. And if you're really focused on the customer it helps you filter out your sort of your observer bias, your experience bias so that you, Again, you sort of jump to a conclusion about what they're going to say rather than really listening to what they're telling you about their problem. Yeah, and I, th I think that all of us have little voices in our head, right, <laughs> that are talking to us. And that is one of the reasons that I personally use sales scripts because then I'm not worried about what I'm going to ask next. Mm -hmm. I am paying attention to what we're talking about and then whatever the correct next question would be is already developed ahead of time. Well, so it's, and I pick one based on what you just said. 
So. Right. So let's digress a little bit on that topic for a minute. Is so yeah. I mean, sales scripts, a lot of value in sales scripts. Do you set those up as sort of a tree type approach? You know, if they say yes to this question, ask this question. If they say no, ask this. How do you set up your script? Uh, and if we had a whiteboard in front of us, you you would see, right? So we just wrote out that kind of hierarchy diagram. And everyone who's ever made a sales call knows that those never work, right? And the reason is because we have no idea what the other person is going to say. Mm-hmm. So I... I have questions crafted so that I make sure that they're open-ended and conversational. And I have actually a list of question strings on my desk, right? That are things as simple as tell me more about dot, dot, dot. Right. Please explain dot, dot, dot. Right. You know, that kind of thing. So that it, it makes sense to the conversation that we're having because the fun part I tell people all the time, my part is, boring right my part is scripted the fun part is that it's like being in a movie with bill murray or Chevy chase who are improving everything they do right so the customer's doing the improv but i'm doing the scripted part so, so you, instead yeah, you of be the straight man right it, yeah so instead of that if then diagram it ends up looking like a ball of yarn that a cat played with in the middle right and if i have the questions pre-crafted and just kind of, I usually put them in, in the areas of qualification that, that I need for my business. So understand what areas of qualification you have and have two or three questions per area of qualification so that you can fit them in where it makes conversational sense rather than trying to go in a diagram. Agreed. Got it. All right. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, the remaining part of this acronym we're exploring, how to increase sales using effort, E-F-F-O-R-T. And there's, uh, we've talked about the enthusiasm and the, the focus, and we'll come back with F-O-R-T after the break with my guest, Lynn Heidi. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a 1,000 companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Welcome back with my guest today, Lynn Heidi, and we've been talking about increasing sales with sort of the six-step process. We've talked about enthusiasm, we've talked about focus, now we're talking a little bit about forecasting. And you're not, I mean, you're always talking about planning, but in a way, when you talk about forecasting, it's the second F in, in effort, is it's not like a forecast of results, it's a forecast of activity, is really what you're talking about. What's it going to take for you to, what activities is it going to take and what level of activities in order to achieve the goals that you have? And I think that the reason that I, I think of it from an activity perspective is that in my sales career, you know, my boss always wanted to know, you know, what's your low commit and high for the month? And they would ask you that, but no one ever taught me, right? How to do that. We don't learn that as kids, you know, sure. 
I played soccer. Nobody ever said, how many goals are you going to forecast for this year, for this season, Lynn? You know? Right. So I think that we need to, as salespeople and professionals, we need to back that up and say, all right, what do I want my, what do I want it to look like? So as a person, I know that I need activity. So my highest profit margin year selling IT equipment was $984,000 in profit margin for the mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. Well, if we averaged out, just divided by number of sales orders, I did it $500 at a time. And that's all well and good, but a friend of mine did it $100,000 at a time and only did, he did 1.1 the year that I did 984. Right. So, what his days looked like, what he needed to do to win those deals versus what I was doing to win mine was very different, right? What our customers looked like, like I was doing it $500 at a time, but with a smaller group, you know, with a small group of companies. Yeah, Not right. And I think it's small it, orders with 20 people, you know, 20 different organizations. So what you need to do from a sales activity perspective is very different depending on what you want it to look like. Right. So in this case, forecasting is really a, a planning to some degree, but it's uh, forecasting is a great way to sort of look at it. I have this uh, thing I talk about in my most recent book, and I've written a couple of blogs about it, is that people really liked called the lead deficit. And it's a way, it's a way of calculating exactly how many opportunities you need to develop within a, a, a sales year in mm -hmm. order to hit your number. And it's a very simple tool, and you'd call it a forecasting tool, and I, I think that's a great way to look at it. But forecasts, okay, how many, how many opportunities do I need to develop? How's that devolve into how many outreach calls or emails and so on I need to make? What's my activity level? Because if you don't know that and you're sort of going through the year sort of improvising, you're never going to hit your target. Yeah. And it's, so it's really important to know right at the beginning exactly what I need to do at a very discrete level in order to hit the bigger goal. And when I'm training brand new salespeople, I say, you need to understand what you want it to look like so that you're doing the right things to create that. So yeah. sometimes I think as salespeople, we ignore the fact that by figuring that out, even if it's based on what other people's success look like in an organization, we then know what we need to work toward. Right. You know, even though it was... 20 years ago, I remember looking at three people in the organization that I started working for and saying, okay, I want that level of success. I like what their days look like, right? What, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. what they're not just what, what their commission checks look like or their W2 looks like, but I like how their days seem to be organized. What are they doing? Right. Yeah. And, I think it's a great, a great perspective to have when you're saying, how do I, what do I need to do and how do I want to look at um, it? Yeah. We don't oftentimes sort of visualize what we want life to be, what be like, what we want, you know, our work life and our daily sales activity life to be like. And, you know, this is a good perspective to have on that. So the O in effort is optimization. And I, I really like your take on this because you know, really sort of simple self-assessment that you talk about to really tell if you're on track, which is asking yourself, 
how you feel about the time you're spending on selling. And I look at that from both a quantity perspective and a quality perspective. And as you know, I have this very non-scientific frowny face, neutral face, smiley face way that I do it. Because if you ever were to look at my notebooks and that's kind of my shorthand to myself. And I realized that it really works well with people that I coach as well, because it's so hard to lie to yourself. If exactly. it's that simple. <laughs> exactly. That's it's, it is at the end of the day, we can, we all have delusions about certain things, but yeah, it's really hard at sort of a fundamental level to a real cellular level, really to fool yourself about whether you think you're, whether you're doing the work that you need to do in order to, uh, to hit your goals, or you're spending your time in the way that you need to spend it. And so your, your tool was, is you have, yeah, three different, a smiley face, a neutral face and a frowny face. But for people to just think about that, sort of good, neutral, bad feelings about, you know, what you're doing really guards against going through the motions. And so I, I really like this. I think it's just a simple test everybody could use in sales is to say, look, where do I stand right now today? Let's say, okay, we're recording this in the sort of middle of March. Yeah, how do I how do I feel about my progress for where I need to be, having done my forecast of activity for the year? Do I feel positive about it? Am I neutral or not so good? And what if it's not so good, what's that tell me I need to do? And I think sometimes we get caught up in the how as well. Like, how am I going to do this, right? So I think salespeople a lot of times are focused on hitting the goal. And sometimes we forget to evaluate what we're doing right now. Almost back to that focus idea of, right? Like, yeah. what, what does it look like today? Yeah, and I think that it, based on the, the outcome of the simple self-assessment, self, self excuse me, easy for me to say, simple <laughs> self-assessment is that you're going to get a clue as to something that needs to change. Yep. And even if it's neutral, something needs to change because we talked again, the enthusiasm is really important. So if you're not enthusiastic about where you are relative to where you need to be, then yeah, you have to start making a change and make it a small change <laughs> to get started, but do, do something a little bit differently. And, and I have to a hundred percent agree with you on the small thing. I'm a huge advocate for pick one thing that you actually can impact and do it until it's habit and then reevaluate. And if you need to do more, do more. But sometimes one small change can make a significant difference. Yeah, I read an article a week or so ago uh, by a gentleman named Jason Van Orden who talks about um, this one concept from a Stanford professor about what they call it a tiny habit is start a new tiny habit, something small. That's a small change. Practice it, make it habitual. And it's a, the word these tiny habit, which I like it. And then get your next tiny habit to help get you in the right direction. All right. So if we go to our results, I have, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I, I have this weird thing, I, right? So I, I work in inside sales. So Inside sales measures everything. I mean, crazy amounts of data is available because people are truly, right? It's everything is yes. measurable. Yes. 
And I've seen dashboards with upwards of 10 or 15 different pieces of information that show up every morning in a salesperson's, you know, face as they start their day. Yeah. It's only about 10 or 15 too many. Yeah. Yeah. And so one of my, one of my big things about results is deciding on how frequently should you really look at different measurements so that I just, you know, there are some things that it makes sense to look at every day, right? So if I set, if I forecast and set a goal for myself of how many, how much activity I need to do, I might need to look at that daily or maybe weekly, depending on what it is. But how often do you really need to measure something is critical, I think, to, to making results matter to yourself. Yeah, and what you were talking about and the message I took away from what you wrote about in that, which is something I agree with 100%, is that you're talking about measuring the process, right? That there's inputs and outputs in a process. And if we consider sales to be sort of, you know, somewhat manufacturing, like we've got a series of inputs going and the output is an outcome, a positive outcome, hopefully, in terms of an order, you really need to keep track of the, the inputs in the process because too often, and I see it a lot of times with these dashboards, too focused on just on outcomes, you know, orders, as mm-hmm. opposed to, well, what needs to take place for the order to happen? Are we managing that part of the process appropriately? And lots of people talk about, right, the sales, the funnel. That always depresses me because I feel like I'm putting all this stuff in and I'm not getting very much out at the bottom. Right. But if I flip it over and I think of it as a pyramid and I'm building, for some reason that makes me feel better about it. So, <laughs> so However you look at it, right, there's, for me, the base of the pyramid, when I talk to inside salespeople is dial the phone. Sure. But don't forget that dial the phone is critical to being successful. It is not the result, right? That is the input. That's the Mm -hmm. first thing you need to do. And you're building on that. And we really want to talk to a person and have a conversation and find opportunities and, right, move them through the process and close deals and all of those things that get us to the dollar sign at the top of the pyramid. Right. Okay. And if we move to the last letter in the word effort, it's T and you say talk track. So it's really about your, your scripts and we sort of touched on the scripts a little bit before. So um, anything else you want to cover on scripts? I think the biggest thing that I see missing from most salespeople is that they do not have an, a handle on what is the next logical step for the prospect to take. Right. So most of us don't actually have a one call close. What's the first logical thing for the prospect to do that will move them forward? Right. Yeah, I call that the, the, what's the next physical action they need to take. Yep. And it needs to be something they need to do, not you. Right? So you sending them information is not them taking action. (laughs) Yeah, no, not at all. And I think we confuse that sometimes. Oh, they let me send them a quote. Okay. (laughs) That's you, the salesperson, (laughs) not them, the prospect doing anything. Right. All right. Well, good. So effort. And we're going to give people a chance in a second to 
find out where to uh, find out more about Lynn Heidi and, and more about the effort scenario. So I just want to move to the last segment of the show. I've got some hypothetical questions and some standard questions to ask all my guests. And the first one's a hypothetical scenario that I ask uh, everybody is that you've just been hired as a new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out. They need to get unstuck in a hurry. What two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Mm-hmm. After I've already announced that I am unemployable at that level, let's see, what would I do? Um, let's see. The first two things I would do, number one is I would interview four of the company's customers, mm-hmm. two of their best customers and two of their newest customers to understand why they bought. Okay. And the two newer customer, two newest customers, I would ask why they decided to buy this time. And then the second thing I would do is to work with the sales organization on, okay, how can we leverage that information to unstall sales? Okay, good answer. I like it. So it's rapid fire questions for you. I got a few here for you. You can give me one word answers if you want, or you can elaborate. Is the first one is when you're selling, you, Lynn Heidi, are selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? Enthusiasm. Who's your sales role model? Ooh. I have to share. I have I have lots. I have just give one. That's top of your mind. I know. I have so many mentors for so many different little things. How about this? I'm going to say Kendra Lee at the KLA group for prospecting. Okay. Excellent. What's the one book every salesperson should read? Oh, it's a not sales book. That's fine. It is by Austin Kleon and it's steal like an artist. Feel like an artist. Steal. Oh, steal like an artist. Interesting. Okay. That's a new one. All right. Well, I can tell you're writing it down. I am. <laughs> it's gonna. I'm gonna look it up when I when the show's over. I'm gonna look it up. I may even buy it. So, uh, it's time to accelerate. Hi, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Join me as I host conversations with the leading experts in sales, marketing, sales automation, sales process, leadership, management, training, coaching, any resource that I believe to help you accelerate the growth of your sales, your business, and most importantly, you. Hello, and welcome to Accelerate. You know, I'm amped up to talk with my guest today. Joining me is Lynn Heidi. Lynn Heidi is founder of upyourtelesales.com and the expert at creating profitable telesales salespeople and organizations. So it's not easy work to grow your sales, and yet many CEOs, sales leaders, and sales reps are their own worst enemies when it comes to accomplishing this task. They create wrong roadblocks, both real and imagined, that prevent them from doing what it takes to develop new prospects and close new orders. My guest today, Lynn Heidi, has worked extensively with teams and understands what it takes to grow your sales, and she's going to help us understand what it takes to be competitive and to increase our revenues in this competitive business world. So, Lynn, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. Glad to be here. So, take a minute, introduce yourself. So I have been in inside sales exclusively for the last 20 years and really work with salespeople and sales leaders to catapult themselves from where they are today to where they want to be. And I actually 
love the bell curve, the people that are inside the bell curve. And if we look at growing revenue, not to make them all rock stars, because I kind of believe that that's not possible to, for everyone to be a rock star. But if everybody in your organization increased their revenue by 10%, what a change that would make for all of us. So I like to focus on those mid-tier people. Well, I think it's a great stretch. I've written written about that actually in, in my first book specifically. I said, yeah, your return on investment from investing resources and improving the performance of the middle, if done well, is much higher ROI than trying to improve the people at the top 10% because you have to imagine they they pretty much, they're closer to their top, top potential. That's yep. why they're at the top. So, yep. you know, getting... Marginal improvement from the top people is not nearly as powerful as getting, as you said, 5%, 10% from the people in the middle. Even if it doesn't make them rock stars, it's still the additive value to the company is huge. And I think a lot of times those are the people who are, if I might say, less of a PIA or pain in the you-know-what. <laughs> less, uh, yeah, I mean, less of a diva, I guess you'd say. Yep. But, uh, yeah, I mean, not all top performers, obviously, are divas, but, yeah, some, some can be. They're convinced that theirs is the only way to do it, and they sometimes are harder to, harder to change, absolutely. Yep, yeah, it's, it, I think that's, it's about because they are the rock stars, why would I change what I'm doing if I'm already successful? I guess that would be a better way to say it. Yeah, and those are, and that's interesting. That This could be a whole separate episode we do just on this, is that, <laughs> is that, yeah, I mean, the people who are really successful who are open to change are going to be even more successful in ways that they, they never imagined. And those who think that they figured it out, yeah, they may be good now, but they're hitting, you know, they're going to be static and give them two, three, four years. And I've seen this happen and play out time and time again. There is no such thing as standing still, right? Yeah. You know, I, I, love the quote, I love the quote that if, you know, if we want things to stay the way they are, we're really going to have to change. <laughs> I have to remember that. Yeah, it was, it was from an Italian author, uh, a guy named Lampedusa. I'm not sure that's not the correct pronunciation, but uh, but yeah, that was you know it's a great saying. You know, if you want things to stay the way they are, they're really going to have to change, and that's you know a lot of times top performers don't understand that. Yeah. All right. So, what was the impetus to start your own company? Well, truly, that I was in corporate America mm-hmm. and did all of the right things and climbed up the corporate food chain and hated it. So got to the point where I was doing a job that I was supposed to want and couldn't stand it. So really realized that I didn't ever want to be a sales manager again after, <laughs> a- after the second time I was a sales right. manager. I was a, at a regional sales director and went, Ooh, I really don't like this. <laughs> I really don't. The second time around didn't make it any better. No, so what part of it didn't you like? I believe that you can be responsible to people and not for them. And most sales management positions are not designed that way. At least in my experience. They're responsible for you to be, you are responsible for your people's performance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I intrinsically although successful at it, did not like it. Okay. Yeah, I mean, you like to be responsible to yourself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, and I think that's a, it's an interesting career lesson for people because I know uh, more than a few people that have made similar choices that, that came into management and rose up the ranks and just decided, 
you know, I was much happier when I was just out selling. And I loved the coaching and training part. So, right. So helping people get better at what they did was the energizing piece of being a manager for me. Right. And that's what I get to do now. Yeah. Sell time. And coach. Excellent. Excellent. Train. So I want to talk about today about, um, sort of the six part series you wrote about increasing revenues using an acronym of the word effort, E-F-F-O-R-T. And because I thought it was a really interesting piece because it does highlight some really critical elements of what you need to do to be able to grow your company, increase your sales. So I thought we'd go through that and, and let the audience sort of hear what you have put together. So uh, if we start with the E in effort is... I think great place to start. You talk about enthusiasm. If you want to increase your sales, you need to have enthusiasm. So what, what did you mean? Why was that so important? I think that we have to be enthusiastic about sales as a profession to increase our revenue. So there's the passion that we have for what we do, right? What we're selling and how it helps people. And I think of enthusiasm as really differently, I think, than that cheerleader kind of feel that sometimes we get in sales. And I think what we need to do is really think about who we are as people and, and what enthusiasm looks like for us in particular, so that we know that we are drawing people in, right? So our conversation here is no different to me than a sales conversation. I need to find out a little bit about you, you found out a little bit about me, we talked for a little bit, and now we're really getting in the conversation. But if I wasn't enthusiastic, I couldn't draw you towards me by really engaging you. And that's how I think of enthusiasm. You know, it's not that cheerleader thing. It's the fact that you want to be where you are right now having the conversation you're having, and then you're enjoying it. And so are they. So it's, it's really, so it's really a a two-pronged enthusiasm. I mean, one is enthusiasm for what you're doing, which is the act of selling, and enthusiasm for what you're selling, which is the product or service that you can use to help the customer or bring value to the customer. Yeah, absolutely. I think you have to have both to be successful. And the impact on the prospect is that there's, if you are enthusiastic, is one is is you inspire confidence. You know, that's one of those first impressions is confidence. The prospect mm -hmm. immediately gravitates to somebody that's really, and again, as you said, not falsely confident in the cheerleader sense, but confident in this enthusiasm coming through as, yeah, I really enjoy this and I really this is this is my passion. I I know I can truly help you and I'm that's why I'm so enthusiastic to be here. It's funny because I was doing a presentation and on the spot, I came up with what I call the Winnie the Pooh continuum, right? Say, we, say that we can't be EOR, the Winnie the Pooh continuum. <laughs> the we Winnie can't have okay. either end, right? So we can't be EOR because nobody wants to talk to, oh, I don't know. I don't really know what I'm calling about or why you should talk to me. But we also don't want to be ticker and bouncy and really, really fast because they can't pay attention to that either. So there's somewhere in the middle. you got to figure out where you fit into that Winnie the Pooh continuum. Well, so here's the first. The first is the first Winnie the Pooh reference on the show, which I love. That's great. <laughs> um, and, and, but second, I, 
you're right. I mean, when we talk about enthusiasm or personal, let's say personal presentation, yeah, there is the mm-hmm. spectrum that you talk about, and being on either end is not good. And because both come across as inauthentic in some regards, right? So, and, and even even if it's authentically you, I don't know that people can listen and pay attention and be engaged with you at either end. Yeah, if it's too much work on the the hyper end, or it's just too painful on the on the Eeyore end. Um, <laughs> yeah, but I think those the Eeyore end people tend to sort of self select out of <laughs> out of sales in that regard. But um, but I still think that yeah, I, one of the real keys to this, and I the notes that I wrote as I was reading through your articles was that I'm a huge believer in the power of the first impression. Or I, I call it sometimes the first perception the customer has of you. And this enthusiasm, this light in your eyes that you're really passionate about what it is that you're doing, as I said, is a trust building step. It's a way to quickly build rapport with the customer to start the trust building process that is invaluable. Yeah. And I will say that in a conversation with Dan Waldschmidt, who we both know, yes. um, a little over a year ago now, I think, he talked about what if you went into every conversation wanting the other person to be delighted? And I've actually, that's my intention. When I'm making a sales call myself, it is my intention for the other person to be delighted. And I think that's that first perception thing. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think it helps to have an intention of your own so that they get the first perception that, that you want them to have. Oh, I think that's absolutely true. And the, and the power of first impressions and first perceptions are that they're really sticky. You know, was, uh, I talk about my most recent book, Amp Up Your Sales, there's research that was done by actually a academic uh, a group of people. One of them was from Syracuse, uh, not too far from where you are. And uh, what they found is that when people form these first impressions, these perceptions of other people, is that they're very sticky and very hard to change. So when you think about this, yeah, that's, that's a problem if you don't, you know, if you're not coming in and creating a, a positive first impression, you already have a disadvantage in the sales process compared to somebody who comes in and creates a positive first impression. And so the enthusiasm is really a key. And you think about it, I mean, in your business, you know, you're selling yourself. So you would think you're pretty enthusiastic about that, right? Well, and I, I, I will share that I think that's the first thing everyone sells. I don't care what right. product or service you're selling, right? I think they have to buy into the idea of you buy into the idea of the company that you work for and then they buy stuff. Yeah, well, absolutely. Yeah. The company is second order. You are, you are the first order. Absolutely. Yep. And this enthusiasm a little more complicated these days because it's not just you talking to someone, whether in person or on the phone, but it really sort of starts with your social profile. Oh Yeah. Right. I mean, the enthusiasm, this isn't just your personal mannerism when you're interacting with someone face to face or over the phone or video or whatever. It starts with because what they're going to do is they're going to look at you on LinkedIn. They're going to look at you on Facebook. They're going to look at you on on Twitter. That enthusiasm has to come through there as well. And I think back to your idea of authenticity, the other piece of that puzzle is there needs to be continuity as well. You know, if someone goes to 
your profiles, wherever they are, whether it's a website or a LinkedIn or Twitter or wherever you are on social media, if that's not how you show up when they actually do talk to you, I think there's a huge disconnect. Yeah. Yeah. And people have a hard time, as I talk about, sort of squaring the circle at that point, right? Yep. Yeah. And it's yeah. hard to reconcile these two different personalities. And so suddenly the, the barriers go up. So if, oh, you, yeah. if you come across as something that's you know very enthusiastic, customer service oriented, customer oriented in your public social profiles, and then you show up and you just start talking about you and the company and so on. Yeah, that they're not people have a hard time reconciling that. And so what happens is they pull back because they're not sure which is the right person, who's the real one. And that's yep. that's gonna be a problem for you. So second one is focus. <laughs> so yep. you really talk about focus in two ways. One is prioritization, the other one is being present. So let's talk about prioritization. Hmm. Okay. So when we think of prioritization, or when I think of prioritization, one of the things that I think happens in our world of multitasking, and if you haven't read David Crenshaw's book, The Myth of Multitasking, that came out way back in 2008, I believe, um, pick it up, um, is that we need to make sure that we're looking at what are the activities that are going to move us forward in the sales process? And I actually would prefer to use the word buyer's process because mm-hmm. I think a lot of times we get stuck as salespeople in that idea that I'm going to move them through my process when in fact we need to insinuate ourselves into how they buy instead, um, which could be a whole nother conversation as well. But really knowing what's not relevant and making sure that we are doing all of the right actions so that we are going through that process with them at where they are at the moment. Yeah. So absolutely. I agree. So one of the aspects I like to wrote about in the article is that sort of talking about, you know, multitasking doesn't really work is that you need to block out time on your calendar to sell. Mm hmm. I mean, if it doesn't sound on your calendar, it doesn't get done. Yeah, and I, I find for myself personally, right, so I'm an, an, a Microsoft Outlook user, right, with my calendar, and I am much more likely to move an appointment than I am to just dismiss it or delete it. Right, it's already on there, just shift it. So I find for myself the big bonus that I get is number one, when someone asks me to do something, if I have selling time on my calendar, I am more likely to ask them if we can meet at another time. So even though it's only quote unquote, or just an appointment with myself, it's sales time. So for instance, scheduling a conversation with you, I can pick a time that's not a sales focused time and make sure that I keep that commitment to myself for revenue generating activity. And I don't know, I've only ever had one person say, no, that's the only time I can talk to you. I think. And they're, you know, right. you know most of our prospects and customers are merely picking a time that's open on their calendar and are, 
completely open to rescheduling. So, yeah, well, I think that, you know, a tool or one idea for people that, that they could consider doing is that, yeah, you've got time blocked out in your calendar that is your selling and it's your setting appointments and so on is, is use a scheduling program like time trade or schedule once or something like that, that you send the customer a link to schedule and you've got your availability blocked out on this calendar. Yeah. Customers are, as you said, are more flexible than you think and willing to work within the timeframes that you have. And it fits within your set calendarized selling time, which I think is really important. The other thing I like about in your focus you talked about is really a focus on the customer while you're there. You know, you really have to make a, an effort to be present. And sort of a little bit with regard to the multitasking is, is that, you know, when you're in front of a customer, you can't be looking at your phone. You can't, you really have to be, if you really want to be there for them and understand their problems and ask the right questions and hear their answers, you have to be completely focused. And I will share with you, because I work with inside salespeople, it's even easier to allow yourself to be distracted because you're not physically in front of them. And, you know, it's very easy to let that instant message distract you from listening or, you know, looking something up while you're talking to somebody because you're thinking about the next thing you want to talk with them about instead of what they're saying right now is a very significant problem. Well, I mean, well, yeah, and I think the, a point you bring up, which was really good, which was that is by focusing on the customer, you serve, you filter out the self-doubt and the self-talk. And if you're really focused on the customer, it helps you filter out your sort of your observer bias, your experience bias, so that you, again, you sort of jump to a conclusion about what they're going to say rather than really listening to what they're telling you about their problem. Yeah, and I th- I think that all of us have little voices in our head, right, <laughs> that are talking to us, and that is one of the reasons that I personally use sales scripts because then I'm not worried about what I'm going to ask next. Mm-hmm. I am paying attention to what we're talking about, and then whatever the correct next question would be is already developed ahead of time. Well, so it's, and I pick one based on what you just said. So. Right. So let's digress a little bit on that topic for a minute. Is so, yeah. I mean, sales scripts a lot of value in sales scripts. Do you set those up as sort of a tree type approach? You know, if they say yes to this question, ask this question. If they say no, ask this. How do you set up your script? Uh, and if we had a whiteboard in front of us, you, you would see, right. So we just wrote out that kind of hierarchy diagram and everyone who's ever made a sales call knows that those never work. Right. And the reason is because we have no idea what the other person is going to say. So I, I have questions crafted so that I make sure that they're open-ended and conversational. And I have actually a list of question strings on my desk, right. That are, Things as simple as tell me more about dot dot dot. Right. Please explain dot dot dot. Right. You know, that kind of thing. So that it it makes sense to the conversation that we're having. Because the fun part I tell people all the time, my part is boring, right? My part is scripted. The fun part is that it's like being in a movie with Bill Murray or Chevy Chase who are improving everything they do, right? So the customer's doing the improv, but I'm doing the scripted part. So, so you, instead yeah, of... Yeah, the straight man, right? It, yeah, so instead of that if-then diagram, it ends up looking like a ball of yarn that a cat played with. 
in the middle. Right. And if I have the questions pre-crafted and just kind of, I usually put them in, in the areas of qualification that, that I need for my business. So understand what areas of qualification you have and have two or three questions per area of qualification so that you can fit them in where it makes conversational sense rather than trying to go in a diagram. Agreed. Got it. All right. We're going to take a short break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk about uh, the remaining part of this acronym we're exploring, how to increase sales using effort, E-F-F-O-R-T. And there's, uh, we've talked about the enthusiasm and the, the focus, and we'll come back with F-O-R-T after the break with my guest, Lynn Heidi. Hi, this is Andy. Connect and Sell is used by sales reps at nearly a thousand companies, including hundreds of technology startups and several Fortune 500 companies, to overcome the challenges of getting prospects on the phone. Companies using Connect and Sell grow their revenues faster by enabling their sales reps to have more sales conversations in 90 minutes than they could otherwise achieve in an entire week. Connect and Sell can be deployed directly to your sales reps, or you can take advantage of their outbound on-demand service, which delivers qualified prospect meetings scheduled directly on your sales reps' calendars. Visit connectandsell.com to learn more about how Connect and Sell can start filling your pipeline today. Welcome back with my guest today, Lynn Heidi, and we've been talking about increasing sales with sort of the six-step process. We've talked about enthusiasm, we've talked about focus, now we're talking a little bit about forecasting. And you're not, I mean, you're always talking about planning, but in a way, when you talk about forecasting, it's the second F in, in effort, is it's not like a forecast of results, it's a forecast of activity, is really what you're talking about. What's it going to take for you to, what activities is it going to take and what level of activities in order to achieve the goals that you have? And I think that the reason that I, I think of it from an activity perspective is that in my sales career, you know, my boss always wanted to know, you know, what's your low commit and high for the month? And they would ask you that, but no one ever taught me, right? How to do that. We don't learn that as kids. You know, sure. I played soccer. Nobody ever said, how many goals are you going to forecast for this year, for this season, Lynn? You know, right. so I think that we need to, as salespeople and professionals, we need to back that up and say, all right, what do I want my, what do I want it to look like? So as a person, I know that I need activity. So my highest profit margin year selling IT equipment was $984,000 in profit margin for the mm -hmm. company. Mm -hmm. Well, if we averaged out, just divided by number of sales orders, I did it $500 at a time. And that's all well and good, but a friend of mine did it $100,000 at a time and only did, he did 1.1 the year that I did 984. Right. So, what his days looked like, what he needed to do to win those deals versus what I was doing to win mine was very different, right? What our customers looked like, like I was doing it $500 at a time, but with a smaller group, you know, with a small group of companies. Yeah, Not, and I, right. And I think it's small it, orders with 20 people, you know, 20 different organizations. So what you need to do from a sales activity perspective is very different depending on what you want it to look like. Right. So in this case, forecasting is really a 
a planning to some degree, but it's uh, forecasting is a great way to sort of look at it. I have this uh, thing I talk about in my most recent book, and I've written a couple of blogs about it, is that people really liked called the lead deficit. And it's a way, it's a way of calculating exactly how many opportunities you need to develop within a, a, a sales year in mm-hmm. order to hit your number. And it's a very simple tool, and you'd call it a forecasting tool, and I, I think that's a great way to look at it. But forecasts, okay, how many, how many opportunities do I need to develop? How's that devolve into how many outreach calls or emails and so on I need to make? What's my activity level? Because if you don't know that and you're just sort of going through the year sort of improvising, you're never going to hit your target. Yeah. And so it's really important to know right at the beginning exactly what I need to do at a very discreet level in order to hit the bigger goal. And when I'm training brand new salespeople, I say, you need to understand what you want it to look like so that you're doing the right things to create that. So sometimes I think as salespeople, we ignore the fact that by figuring that out, even if it's based on what other people's success look like in an organization, we then know what we need to work toward. Right. You know, even though it was... 20 years ago, I remember looking at three people in the organization that I started working for and saying, okay, I want that level of success. I like what their days look like, right? What, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. what they're not just what, what their commission checks look like or their W2 looks like, but I like how their days seem to be organized. What are they doing? Right. Yeah. And, I think it's a great, a great perspective to have when you're saying, how do I, what do I need to do and how do I want to look at um, it? Yeah. We don't oftentimes sort of visualize what we want life to be, what be like, what we want, you know, our work life and our daily sales activity life to be like. And, you know, this is a good perspective to have on that. So the O in effort is optimization. And I, I really like your take on this because you know, really sort of simple self-assessment that you talk about to really tell if you're on track, which is asking yourself how you feel about the time you're spending on selling. And I look at that from both a quantity perspective and a quality perspective. And as you know, I have this very non-scientific frowny face, neutral face, smiley face way that I do it. Because if you ever were to look at my notebooks, and that's kind of my shorthand to myself, and I realized that it really works well with people that I coach as well, because it's so hard to lie to yourself if exactly. it's that simple. <laughs> exactly. That's, it's, it is, at the end of the day, we, can, we all have delusions about certain things, but yeah, it's really hard at sort of a fundamental level to a real cellular level, really to fool yourself about whether you think you're whether you're doing the work that you need to do in order to, uh, to hit your goals, or you're spending your time in the way that you need to spend it. And so your, your tool was, is you have, yeah, three different, a smiley face, a neutral face, and a frowny face. But for people to just think about that, sort of good, neutral, or bad feelings about, you know, what you're doing, really guards against going through the motions, and so I, I really like this. I think it's just a simple test everybody could use in sales is to say, look, where do I stand right now today? Let's say, okay, we're recording this in the sort of middle of March. Yeah, how do, I, how do I feel about 
my progress for where I need to be, having done my forecast of activity for the year, do I feel positive about it? Am I neutral or not so good? And what if it's not so good, what's that tell me I need to do? And I think sometimes we get caught up in the how as well. Like, how am I going to do this, right? So I think salespeople a lot of times are focused on hitting the goal. And sometimes we forget to evaluate what we're doing right now. Almost back to that focus idea of, right? Like, yeah. what, what does it look like today? Yeah, and I think that it, based on the, the outcome of the simple self-assessment, self, self excuse me, easy for me to say, simple <laughs> self-assessment is that you're going to get a clue as to something that needs to change. Yep. And even if it's neutral, something needs to change because we talked again, enthusiasm is really important. So if you're not enthusiastic about where you are relative to where you need to be, then yeah, you have to start making a change and make it a small change <laughs> to get started, but do, do something a little bit differently. And, and I have to a hundred percent agree with you on the small thing. I'm a huge advocate for pick one thing that you actually can impact and do it until it's habit and then reevaluate. And if you need to do more, do more. But sometimes one small change can make a significant difference. Yeah, I read an article a week or so ago uh, by a gentleman named Jason Van Orden who talks about um, this one concept from a Stanford professor about what they call it, a tiny habit. Start a new tiny habit, something small that's a small change. Practice it, make it habitual. And it's a the word these tiny habit, which I like it, and then get your next tiny habit to help get you in the right direction. Right. So if we go to our results, I have, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, I, I have this weird thing, I, right? So I, I work in inside sales. So inside sales measures everything. <laughs> I mean, crazy amounts of data is available because people are truly Right? It's everything is measurable. Yes. yes. And I've seen dashboards with upwards of 10 or 15 different pieces of information that show up every morning in a salesperson's, you know, face as they start their day. Yeah, it's only about 10 or 15 too many. Yeah, yeah, and so one of my one of my big things about results is deciding on how frequently should you really look at different measurements so that I just, you know, there are some things that it makes sense to look at every day, right? So if I set, if I forecast and set a goal for myself of how many, how much activity I need to do, I might need to look at that daily or maybe weekly, depending on what it is. But how often do you really need to measure something is critical, I think, to, to making results matter to yourself. Yeah. And, I, and what you were talking about and the message I took away from what you wrote about in that, which is something I agree with hundred percent is that you're talking about measuring the process, right? That there's inputs and outputs in a process. And if we consider sales to be sort of, you know, somewhat manufacturing, like we've got a series of inputs going and the output is an outcome, a positive outcome, hopefully in terms of an order, you really need to keep track of the, the inputs and the process because too often, and I see it a lot of times with these dashboards, 
too focused on just on outcomes, you know, orders, as mm-hmm. opposed to, well, what needs to take place for the order to happen? Are we managing that part of the process appropriately? And lots of people talk about, right, the sales, the funnel that always depresses me because I feel like I'm putting all this stuff in and I'm not getting very much out at the bottom. Right. But if I flip it over and I think of it as a pyramid and a building, for some reason that makes me feel better about it. So, <laughs> <laughs> so however you look at it, right, there's, for me, the base of the pyramid when I talk to inside salespeople is dial the phone. Sure. But don't forget that dial the phone is critical to being successful. It is not the result, right? That is the input. That's the mm-hmm. first thing you need to do. And you're building on that. And we really want to talk to a person and have a conversation and find opportunities and right, move them through the process and close deals and all of those things that get us to the dollar sign at the top of the pyramid. Right. Okay. And if we move to the last letter and the word effort, it's T and you say talk track. So it's really about your, your scripts and we sort of touched on the scripts a little bit before. So um, anything else you want to cover on scripts? I think the biggest thing that I see missing from most salespeople is that they do not have an, a handle on what is the next logical step for the prospect to take. Right. So most of us don't actually have a one call close. What's the first logical thing for the prospect to do that will move them forward. Right. I call that the, the, what's the next physical action they need to take. Yep. And it needs to be something they need to do, not you. Right. So you sending them information is not them taking action. (laughs) Yeah, no, not at all. And I think we confuse that sometimes. Oh, they let me send them a quote. Okay. <laughs> That's you, the salesperson, <laughs> not them, the prospect doing anything. Right. All right. Well, good. So effort. And we're going to give people a chance in a second to find out where to uh, find out more about Lynn Heidi and, and more about the effort scenario. So I just want to move to the last segment of the show. I've got some hypothetical questions and some standard questions to ask all my guests. And the first one's a hypothetical scenario that I ask uh, everybody is that you've just been hired as a new sales leader at a company whose sales have stalled out. They need to get unstuck in a hurry. What two things would you do your first week on the job that could have the biggest impact? Mm -hmm. After I've already announced that I am unemployable at that level, let's see, what would I do? Um, Let's see. The first two things I would do, number one is I would interview four of the company's customers, two Mm -hmm. of their best customers and two of their newest customers to understand why they bought. Okay. And the two newer customer, two newest customers, I would ask why they decided to buy this time. And then the second thing I would do is to work with the sales organization on, okay, how can we leverage that information to unstall sales? Okay, good answer. I like it. So it's rapid fire questions for you. I got a few here for you. You can give me one word answers if you want, or you can elaborate. Is the first one is when you're selling, you Lynn Heidi are selling, what's your most powerful sales attribute? 
Enthusiasm. Who's your sales role model? Ooh. I have to share. I have I have lots. I have just give one. That's top of your mind. I know. I have so many mentors for so many different little things. How about this? I'm gonna say Kendra Lee at the KLA group for prospecting. Okay, excellent. What's the one book every salesperson should read? Oh, it's a not sales book. That's fine. It is by Austin Kleon, and it's Steal Like an Artist. Feel Like an Artist? Steal. Oh, Steal Like an Artist. Interesting. Okay, that's a new one. All right. Well, I can tell you're writing it down. Either. I am. <laughs> it's gonna, I'm going to look it up when, I, when the show's over. I'm going to look it up. I made him buy it. So, uh, tough question here. What music's on your playlist right now? Oh, well, before we started recording, I told you that there's um, a gallery doing oh, yeah. a Ramones. Um, so you got the Ramones on your playlist. So I would have to say, yeah, there's definitely, there's definitely Ramones on the playlist. Excellent. Okay. So what, last question for you. The one question you get asked most frequently by salespeople is? How can I make more money and work less? And the short answer is? Be really, really good in every sales conversation you have. Love it. I love it. I believe that 100%. Every sales interaction, you have to bring your A game. All right. Well, Lynn, I want to thank you for joining me today. Uh, tell this is really they, fun, Andy. Well, yeah, we could talk forever. So tell people how they can find out more about you. The best way to find out about me is upyourtelesales.com, U-P-Y-O-U-R. T-E-L-E-S-A-L-E-S.com. I'm also on LinkedIn. If you send me a message and say, I heard you on Andy Paul's podcast, I will definitely accept your invitation. Excellent. All right. Well, good. Well, thanks again for joining us. Remember, friends, make it a part of your day every day to deliberately learn something new to help you accelerate your success. Easy way to do that is to make this podcast accelerate a part of your daily routine whether on your commute or in the gym or make it a part of your morning sales huddle. But then you'll make sure you don't miss any of my conversations with top best business experts like my guest today, Lynn Heidi, who shared her expertise about how to accelerate the growth of your company. So thanks for joining us. Until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Thanks for listening to the show. If you like what you heard and want to make sure you don't miss any upcoming episodes, please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher.com. For more information about today's guests, visit my website at andypaul.com.